Welcome to Madison Avenue Presbyterian Church. We hope this message encourages you and inspires you to serve God and your neighbor. If you want to learn more about our ministry, head over to mapc.com. If you're looking for a community where you can deepen your faith, we invite you to join us every Sunday at 1030 online or in person. It is so good to see you this morning. A baptism, communion, and confirmation all in one service. This is indeed a day for celebration, and for those of you who are joining us online today, welcome. We are glad that you are here. I have now been in ministry for 34 years. And I was very, very fortunate that in my first call, I served two small Presbyterian churches. This gave me ample time to read and study, to write, and even to publish. It also afforded me a rather unique opportunity to participate in a variety of training programs, including a special program to become a pastoral counselor. We lived about an hour outside of Charlotte, North Carolina, and three days a week I drove into the city. It's kind of funny referring to Charlotte as a city living in New York, but uh, three days a week I drove into the city and spent about 20 hours a week at the training center. I digested scores of books and psychoanalytic theory and family systems. I had hundreds of hours of supervision in group settings and in individual settings, and I had the immense privilege of sitting with a variety of men and women who articulated their deepest fears and hopes and pains and aspirations. My goal at the time was to become a pastoral counselor full-time. I wanted to become a member of the American Association of Pastoral Counselors. This was the national organization at that time that certified pastoral counselors. The process culminated with an oral examination and a presentation of one's work. I had prepared well and had even exceeded, far exceeded, the basic requirements. I had met with, for example, one counselee for 30 sessions, and those sessions were supervised by the same supervisor. I prepared a 40-page critique evaluation of this case and analyzed it both from a theological and a psychological perspective. And then the day came. That exciting day when I sat alone in a small room with three highly seasoned therapists and supervisors. No warmth, no smile, no humor. They sat there and said, Patrick, present your work. And I did. I was so excited. I gave them my diagnosis. I explained my treatment plan. I played sessions of the tape recordings. We had to record every session with every client. And I played sessions, uh, parts of different sessions with this, you know, I I think I did well here, don't you? And uh, I felt really good going into this examination, but but, but, but they, they didn't feel quite as good as I did. They began to pummel me with question after question. They, they did not care for my diagnosis. They didn't really care for my treatment plan. They raised their eyebrows when I said this or 
when I said that, they pushed and they pulled, they pressed and they challenged, and an hour and a half later, I was exhausted, and then they took the vote. They each scribbled yes or no on a sheet of paper, then handed it to me, and by that point, I was actually somewhat surprised that when I went through these scraps of paper, I read yes, yes, and yes. One of the supervisors, these therapists, became a trusted friend many years later, and he said then, he told me later that when a group determines within a minute or two that the candidate will pass, they will spend the next hour and a half pushing that person and challenging that person as vigorously as they possibly could. And I said to him, Monty Knight, my friend in Charleston, South Carolina, I said to Monty, oh, thank you so much uh, for that compassion. I, I, I really, really appreciate it. I, what I remember from that day is just feeling exhausted. But, but I also remember one other thing that one of the therapists said to me, um, something that I have carried with me now for over 20 years that has guided my understanding of discipleship and leadership. He, he said, Patrick, when you finally got out of the way, she was able to do the healing work that she needed to do. I, I have found that true in ministry as much as I did in my counseling work with a variety of clients. When I can finally get myself out of the way, God's people are able to accomplish amazing things. Paul points us in this direction in his letter to the church in Philippi. He says to the Philippians that Christ emptied himself. Now the word here is kenosis. You will not hear me quote Greek words very often, but kenosis is a good word. Could you even say that with me this morning? Kenosis. Kenosis. Doesn't that sound nice? Doesn't that sort of roll off your tongue? Kenosis. It means to empty oneself. It means to surrender. It means to relinquish a status. It means that Christ divested himself of any sort of privilege or title. Kenosis, it means getting out of the way. In his ministry, Christ got out of the way so that God's Spirit could work through him and through the people that he touched. That is to say, Christ in his ministry gave up his need. He released it. He relinquished his need to be right all the time. He gave up his need to be in control. He gave up his need to be on top. In surrendering his ambition to pursue his own agenda and goals and purpose, he opened himself up. He made room for God's agenda and goals and purpose. And I want to suggest to you, and particularly to my confirmation class this morning, that kenosis and discipleship go hand in hand. And kenosis and Christian leadership go hand in hand. It seems that of all people, there are some in the business world who actually understand the meaning of kenosis. In an issue of the Harvard Business Review a few years ago, Henry Mintzberg asserts that a certain cult of leadership is dragging businesses down 
These companies embrace the notion of the single isolated leader who is supposed to charge heroically ahead, formulating the grand strategies, making the tough decisions, pulling off the great mergers while downsizing left and right. Frequently, such people sweep into companies where they have no roots to save the day. They often succeed for a year or two. The assumption, he continues, is that every company with a problem needs new leadership, more leadership. But I think many have had too much leadership. They need less leadership, maybe even an older kind of leadership, just enough leadership. Mintzberg then cites how Luke Gerstner turned around IBM in the 1990s and suggests that he did so because he supported the initiative and the imagination of those around him. Do you know what Luke Gerstner did at IBM? He got out of the way. Mintzberg's description of business leadership sounds almost biblical. He writes, such leaders care a lot more than they cure. They connect a lot more than they control. They demonstrate a lot more than they decide. These leaders are not perched on top, they work throughout. Kenosis evidently is a good word, even for major corporations. How does Paul put it? Make my joy complete, be of the same mind, having the same love, being in full of cord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility. Regard others as better than yourselves. Look, each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. That, my friends, is the essence of biblical leadership. That is the essence of Christian discipleship. Let each of you look not to your own interests, but to the interests of others. So whether you are a deacon, or an elder, or a trustee, or a minister of the word and sacrament, get out of the way and make room for others. Make room for the ideas and opinions of others. Get out of the way and make room for creativity and imagination. Make room for other styles of worship and leadership and music that enable people to strengthen their relationship with Christ, and particularly make room. Get out of the way and make room for those who are different. Well, what is it then? What is it that gets in your way in being the disciple that Christ would have you be? What gets in your way of being a faithful servant of God? What do you need to release? What do you need to give up? Is it the need to control that you exercise by deriding and dismissing others? Do you have this need to be seen as important so you want to stand up and at the beginning of a meeting talk loudly and forcefully so that people will listen to you? What, what, what do you need to give up to be a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ? Do you need to give up, give up a nagging sense of disappointment or bitterness? Do you need to give up your fear of appearing weak or irrelevant? 
getting out of the way and making room for others sound very, very odd and strange and ridiculous in our world today. I hope our confirmation class listens to that. Getting out of the way and making room for others is strange in our world. I happen to know that it is also an aspect of being Christian that you understand. I have seen it with my own eyes this past week. The world does not like it when we make room for others, particularly those who are different. We live in a world that deifies, worships the individual, and condemns as socialists all those who want to provide all people with life's basic necessities. We disparage and we assume the worst of those who disagree with us. We cry foul and complain that our rights and freedoms are being denied when we're asked to take safety precautions on, the, on behalf of the others during the pandemic. We too easily pass judgment on those who are different from us, different in race, nationality, gender identity, or sexual orientation. But confirmants, as people who love Jesus, our call is to get out of the way and give up our need to be in control to make room for more and more and more people. And so, so if, if you don't mind, I, I just got to get out of this pulpit for a little bit uh, because I, wanna, I really want to talk to you directly. I, I think that we live in a time in which the church needs not necessarily more leadership, but a different kind of leadership. We need a different kind of leadership in which we do not so much worship one person on top, but we affirm all people in the congregation as disciples and leaders of Jesus Christ. And we need people like you to remind people like us about what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. Oh, the letter that you sent this week to Session. When you asked us as a congregation to communicate to the world that the LGBTQIA community is welcome here, that tells me that you get it. You get what it means to live out kenosis. You get what it means to make room for other people. You get it, and you're teaching the rest of us what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. And so this, this is what I'm asking of you today. And I don't want to get too close because I don't want to frighten you too much, but maybe a little bit would be appropriate since it is Confirmation Sunday. But what I'm asking you to remember is to dare to be different and dare to be seen as odd and weird and strange in the eyes of the world. Dare. Dare to make room in your lives and in the life of the church those whom the world would dismiss or discard. Dare to speak up against those who espouse violence and hatred. Dare to protest any person any policy that would dehumanize another human being. In other words, my friends, what I'm asking you today is to be seen odd as Christ is odd and weird as Christ is weird 
and different as Christ is different. In a world that expects conformity, I invite you to embrace the oddity of being a Christian. Welcome to your church.